I think that's another really important lesson, you know, as faculty, if you're going to bring a problem to a leader, you better come with a solution too. You're back at the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm Kim Skorupski looking at my friend and colleague and partner in crime here at Hopkins, Dr. Rachel Levine. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be back. It's been a while, so I'm glad to see you and talk with you. Thank you so much, everybody. Friends, Dr. Rachel Levine is our Associate Dean for Faculty Educational Development. She's a professor here at Hopkins. She's an internist. She is an education expert. You might want to check out her episode number 71, where she spelled out education competencies. Rachel works really closely with our Institute for Excellence in Education, Dr. Joe Francesco, and has been working for years on educational competencies for faculty members, teaching skills, curriculum development, scholarship around education. And this is her passion and love and definitely a gift she has been given. So I'm, I brought her to here today because here at Hopkins, we developed a faculty career development series, brief little monthly snippets for our new faculty members. So one hour a month, a couple of these a month, we do from either 12 to one or four to five. They're either via Zoom or in person. We we came up with a, an agenda or a, a menu of brief little content offerings that are particularly relevant for early career new faculty members. And Rachel said, hey, I got this great idea. Let's do one on organizational savvy and professional relationships. And she did. And it was wonderful. She's been asked to give it a couple of times now. And I said, let's hop on the podcast because we really haven't done an episode specifically on organizational savvy. And Rachel, isn't it all politics and ew, who wants to deal with all that stuff? So let's get into the meat of this. I love that you brought out this kind of tension uh, or discomfort that sometimes feel uh, faculty feel when they hear organizational savvy. And I think we've even sort of doctored it up to make people feel better. We didn't talk about like, you know, institutional politics, but that's really a little bit about what it is. It's about understanding and uh, recognizing and being able to navigate organizational power and politics. And yeah, I think a lot of people, their initial response is, ooh, Um, we all got into medicine and academic medicine because we are often um, driven by um, a core value of service and helping others. And um, I think sometimes we we can't reconcile those two things like power, politics, um, you know, backroom decisions with, you know, this idea of these really um, noble, and I do think medicine is a noble profession of serving others and um, and altruism. And what I what I hope to um, convey is that I think it really truly is a yes and a both and that I do think medicine and academic medicine is a noble profession is um, driven by really um, important values that we all share around um, making um, the world a better place by um, the care of. Uh, others, whether it's through uh, discovery with research or clinical care or education. But I think if we don't recognize that it is also a complex hierarchical 
organization and institution that um, is driven by many external or at least influenced by many external forces and pressures, um, and that truly understanding kind of power and influence in politics is really important, just quite frankly, for getting things done. And I think faculty who sort of um, are put off by that and um, want to see the world as it should be are missing out on how things really are. And this potentially could um, lead to ineffectiveness, lack of ability to move their professional goals forward, and even maybe frustration and um, dissatisfaction, um, especially when they don't um, understand um, how the institution works and why things might you know, not turn out the way that they had hoped that hope them to. So I think, yeah, yeah, you're so right, Rachel. That is definitely a tension that I feel personally, and you hit the nail on the head to me. It's the ideal versus the real. And this idea that when you and I talk and mentor and coach and sponsor faculty all the time, this feeling and that you and I have even had like, well, I'm doing a good job. I mean, I'm working as hard as I can. Isn't it obvious what I'm doing? I mean, isn't it clear that my the products that I have created, the value I bring, isn't that evident? And why can't this happen? Or why is thus and such happening? Because it just doesn't, you're right, it kind of pushes up against our values. And like, we're not in a money-making industry where we, we came here to get rich, that we're all in this together. We all are about service and altruism. So it really kind of punches us in the gut when we feel that we are in a system that is um sometimes like literally you feel like there there's a pushback on you like holding you back or all the hurdles and barriers people seem to encounter that make it more difficult so it it does kind of it's this really weird place and for us to help faculty inevitably comes down to like relationships and managing those relationships and communicating and and understanding when people say, yeah, but why? Yeah, but why is it? And we're like, that's just <laughs> everywhere you go, you're going to have this culture of this is the way we do things around here. So how do we how do we figure it out? How do we learn and get this savvy? And then what do we do with it? Yeah, so I think these are great questions. And you've touched on a couple things. Um, I think some common misconceptions or misapprehension apprehensions that faculty bring to um, their work um, or their experience. And we can touch on those. Um, I do, I want to, I want to just pause for a moment and sort of define what we mean by organizational savvy. So again, we're talking about this idea of understanding and navigating organizational power and politics. And a lot of what this is, is what I would call situational awareness, right? So this is the ability um, to recognize um, the significance of events in one's institution and how these fit in with the larger institution in terms of, again, what I said, those external forces, maybe the institution's strategic priorities and mission. So again, sort of recognizing what's happening, what's coming on the horizon, what are some potentially emerging opportunities and constraints anticipating future trends, and then being able to really align those with your own professional and personal career goals so that you can perhaps leverage what's happening at the institution um, and align those with your priorities, right? And that might be about 
that person who's like got their nose down doing their work and expecting to be recognized and expecting for um, institutional leaders to recognize that what they're doing actually aligns with the institutional mission. And so that therein is, you know, again, that common uh, misconception. A misconception that if I just work hard and and you know um, keep moving forward, that someone will recognize what I'm doing. And it's not that um, it's not that leaders don't want what's best for all of their faculty. It's just that they have many many other priorities and things that they're paying attention to, and that's why it's important, you know, to periodically make sure that um, your leaders know what you're doing sending them an email. Hey, I, I went to, um, you know, the faculty meeting and I heard that we are concerned about this issue or that issue. And I'm doing this work that I think could really help with that. It could help move the departmental mission forward, or it can help address some of these priorities. And so again, just, you know, developing that awareness about what's happening in the institution, what's driving leaders to make the decisions that they're making allocate resources and figuring out how you can align with that, yeah. or at least message what you're doing to align with that. And, and I think what you're saying too reminds me, I was coaching one of my um, former mentees back in Chicago, and she kept saying throughout the conversation, because I listened, because I listened, because I listened. And it, re- it was a good reminder for me that someone, she had said something or asked something. And one of her colleagues said, well, how do you know that? How do you, how will you know these statistics about university use, whatever, underrepresented medicine faculty? She's like, well, because I listen. And then she said something later on. Well, you know, why would you even know about that? Because I listen. And it was a reminder to me that, yes, part of the communication relationship and that savvy is just closing our mouths and listening to hearing what's being said and also what's not being said. Mm. That kind of listening between the lines and getting, trying to get a bead on, like you're saying, the priorities. How many times do we think that this is top urgent priority for me? It is, or for you, it Mm -hmm. is, but for our bosses, we have no idea their competing priorities. And one, one more thing before flies out of my head, as you're mentioning this idea and the way of thinking, it reminds me of the advice we've been giving our mentees for decades of if you want to get funding and be awarded NIH funding or whatever foundation funding, what do you need to do? Go to the the institute's priorities. You look at that, what are their priorities? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of saying, well, gosh, I'm always my whole my lifelong dream was to, you know, research A and they're looking at F. Oh, well, I guess I can't be a researcher. No, you get creative and you think, how can I do A, but in the context of what the institute is funding and their priorities. So it's always, it's that same thing of like, how can I present my research that's palatable and will help move the science? So that same kind of dance of how do I fit into that NIA, National Institute on Aging, priority list for next year? And the same thing, how do I fit into my division or my department or my institution's priorities? Yeah, I love that. I think that's so important. And I love the example that you gave of your you know, your coachee um, is a good listener. And, you know, if there's some strategies for developing organizational savvy, I would definitely say, you know, paying attention, right? Going to, you know, your, your town hall meetings, right? Going to your faculty meetings, these are important. Looking at 
things like the institution strategic priorities, right? Reviewing those, looking at those carefully and also paying attention. Like what is, what's happening? What are the external forces that are happening? I'll give an example. You know, a couple of years ago, we went through an LCME review, a review of the medical school. And that creates all kinds of challenges, but also opportunities, right? And so, you know, an educator might recognize what's really important for the LCME right now and what might be, you know, a gap in what we're um, able to demonstrate that we're doing. And that might be an opportunity for them to move their kind of personal and professional kind of goals forward. You know, just as an example, and this is not specific to our institution, but I think we all sort of recognize and understand the tremendous value and importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we know that this is something that accrediting bodies are going to be interested in. And so that's a great time as maybe uh, a group or an individual at an institution who's trying to move that agenda forward could share their projects, their ideas, their goals with the right, you know, in the right setting. And it's by paying attention, right? Maybe, maybe volunteering to be on those committees that are involved in that LCME and review, just as one, one example of, again, like listening, listening in on those um, conversations and those committees, and then paying attention um, to, you know, gaps and opportunities that could create, you know, again, an opportunity for you to actually feel more engaged and um, ensure that your values align with the institution. So, you know, you can, you can kind of feel icky about this idea of power and politics, but in the end, it can be really useful for getting things done because this is how institutions and complex organizations work. And if you think about it, power used um, in the service of a shared goal leads to a greater good, right? This is stewardship of power. And it actually, I think it can actually lead to greater values alignment for faculty and also greater engagement and satisfaction. Yeah, you're so right. The politics is, you know, unfortunately, I think, you know, taken on just a dirty word and it kind of, you know, recent events in our country, it makes everyone think that, oh, people and anybody in politics, they're not trustworthy. Um, you, you wonder, you wonder like what their real motivations are. And it just, you never feel like there's any authenticity there, but recognizing that politics is trying to understand people's motivations, then, as Rachel Levine says, and I quote you all the time, is that you ask curious questions. That would maybe then, oh, I'm curious about that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious that my department director is talks about this at the faculty meeting all the time. Or I'm curious why at the town hall meeting they don't mention that. Or I'm curious why she feels that for her lab needs that, but she doesn't recognize that we need that. So that rather than um being so quick to judge and to be emotional, like, why aren't they seeing that what I want to do is important, being curious about, well, why wouldn't they be interested in that? And let me expand my lens and be a scientist, put on that, that, you know, that doctor curious hat of, this is an interesting case presented to me. What's, mm-hmm. what's going on here? So that, I think it is, if we change our our perception of it from being something yucky, gross, things that are not um, noble, rather, you know, make it, this is a a puzzle. I'm going to figure out, I'm curious about the politics and what is motivating people and what is motivating my 
fill in the blank. Then then it kind of makes it more interesting and and maybe palatable. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would, I think this is a great place to maybe talk a little bit about like what power and influence are and how to recognize where they sit. And I think this is particularly important because I know in a few minutes, we're going to talk about professional relationships and knowing about power and influence can help faculty, again, sort of recognize how their mentors or sponsors or leaders um, can, um, you know, what power and influence those folks have and how they can align with them to, to help move their agenda forward. And then also, you know, I think a lot of faculty might say, especially junior faculty, well, I don't have any power and influence. And I think I would, I would, um, I think understanding that can help you recognize the influence and potentially the power that you might have. So let's just pause for a moment and sort of understand that, you know, power and influence are the capacity or ability to direct the behavior of others or the course of events. And power generally is used um, through reward or coercive measures to make something happen, whereas influence uses persuasion over authority. And I think it's important to sort of recognize those two differences. A really simple way of thinking about power is that, you know, there are different sources of power. And so there's positional power, and that's that's power that um, is rooted in a role or a position and is provided by some sort of outside structure. So it creates some legitimacy, right? So if my clinical director tells me that I have to add a clinic, I sort of respect that request because of their their role, right? They have that sort of legitimate power um, or authority through that. They also have the ability to reward or um, use disciplinary or coercive measures. So that's one sort of type of power. That's position power. And then there's personal power. And that's power that is developed and cultivated by an individual, right? And so it could be something like expertise, right? So if I have a particular expertise, expertise or technical skill, I may be um, in demand for that expertise. And that can um, that can be a source of influence, right? So I can influence the direction of a grant proposal because I can inform, you know, bring my knowledge to that. I can influence the direction of a clinical program because I might bring a really important clinical skill that others don't have. And I think that's an important thing um, to, to remember. There's also this idea that you you were just sort of talking about information power. So I may be in a in a I might have social networks or professional networks because I sit on a committee you know, have opportunities to sit in on certain kind of meetings, as an example. So where I'm able to um, garner or gain information that could be useful. And others might come to me because they say, oh, Rachel, I know that you're I know that you're on the IE managing board um, committee, you know, tell me, tell me what they're looking for in their grants, for example. So that's, that's influence. And then I can kind of help maybe direct that. Um, and then the last sort of personal um, type of um, influence or, or power is really like goodwill or trust, right? So this idea of charisma, people, you know, might like you and um, they might listen, you know, to what you have to say. Um, you can help direct things because you've built, um, you You've built this um, uh, respect and trust and and goodwill around you 
you know, kind of like your reputation. So I think it's important to understand these different sources of power, because if you're a junior faculty person and you're trying to, again, figure out how how the institution works and what the structure is, recognizing those different um, sources of power um, and influence are really important. And I think a really important thing to remember is you can look at that organizational chart and it's important to, to know that power and influence don't always align with the organizational chart. So we we have roles in the institution where people have influence, but they don't really have a lot of power because they don't have resources. They don't maybe have a large budget. They can't hire people um, as an example. So I often kind of joke about my role as the associate dean for faculty educational development. So I have influence, right? And I have probably some personal um, power, but I don't have a lot of position power because I don't have a big budget. I can't create, you know, um, a lot of opportunities. Um, I can't move resources around. I can't hire people. And so, you know, it's important for people to recognize that if they're coming to me to ask for something, you know, there's limitations to what I could help them with. I might be able to direct them to somebody who can help them because they do have resources or, you know, through my information um, power. But I think, again, faculty need to sort of understand these nuances um, because it can really help them be more effective. And I really want to put a pin in what you just said around faculty members who are new to an institution or new in academic medicine or um, new in a role, and a new role in an institution. Yeah. And that nuance is so important because, again, the way I think we're trained, the way our brains are, um, we we oftentimes assume things are what they are on the surface without understanding the layers beneath something. So we we might mistakenly think, well, you're a dean. And there's a, the word dean is in your title, Rachel, or Kim. And I've had many faculty members say to me, hey, I got a great idea for faculty and um, we should start a whole, there should be a core for writing and editing services. And it would be look like this. And I'm like, yes, great. I'm on board. I'll do whatever I can. And then some sense of disappointment or disgruntlement with like, well, how come you didn't make that happen? Well, wh- why can't you just do that? Because they're not understanding that I literally, I don't have a checkbook. I can't just, you know, um, make it so and make it happen. So that realization and understanding the organizational chart, who's got what title, who reports to whom, but then really being curious and listening to understand Mm -hmm. how this specific segment works in reality. I mean, ideally, this is, again, my, my sense of what is ideal. Um, is not real. So that is that where you are always so good about the being curious, pausing, let's take a minute here. Am I making any assumptions in which I tend to always make assumptions? What assumptions am I making? What assumptions are you making? Let's get, let's peel this away and not jump into some proposal for something without understanding where we all are. So I like that um, point you're making. And I really want to reflect on that or help people reflect on the assumptions we make when we try to learn or engage in these organizations. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, this, this, I know, um, you know, you're a, you're a um, professionally trained coach and, you know, just encouraging all of us to be our own, you know, coaches with this idea of asking those questions to ourselves, like, 
what am I not understanding about this situation? Or is there a different way that I can understand what's going on here, especially when something, you know, doesn't sit right or feel right. Um, so yes, absolutely. Yes. I was going to say, should we talk about some um, uh, important professional relationships now? Yes, please. Okay. Awesome. Because I think this is a great place to transition. I think once, you know, you have a sense of at least sort of accepting and, and beginning to sort of um, develop some situational awareness around organizational savvy and politics, I think it can help you um, make the most of your professional relationships. So, um, you know, I think everyone appreciates mentorship as sort of the traditional um, professional relationship in academic medicine. We're not really going to focus on that because I think everyone has a good sense of what that's about. But I think we want to talk about two really important ones, sponsorship and followership. So why don't we, do you want to start with um, followership? Yeah, I think I like followership. I like that because we all talk about leadership and all the institutions around you know, the country are all, we all work to either send our faculty members to professional societies, their leadership programs, the AAMC has many programs or, and then we built, many of us have built our own programs. And so everybody, I was just actually interviewing uh, Dr. Rachel Salas yesterday, and she's great. She's like, oh, I always love a good leadership program. Um, so it's, and he, there are some of us who literally are drawn like like moths to leadership programs because we so enjoy them. So yeah, leadership, leadership, leadership. And yet we hear so little about followership. And that sounds like, well, who would want to be a follower? You're, you're trying to train us all to be leaders. So What's up with the followership? And yet, um, you and I both know we started talking a couple of years ago about, you know, my, my my big thing when I came to Hopkins, I remember was interviewing and, and I talked about being a good servant leader, and that idea that sometimes to lead one must follow, and that's not well. After I follow a certain period of time, then I could be a leader. Yes, and you we will all still as a leader, you're still following. We're still following someone else. And then there are moments in our day and seasons where we're going to have to step back and, and follow. So I'd love it if you could kind of get into that and, and um, help us understand your perspective and the value of that. Yeah, happy to. So I got kind of turned on to this idea. Um, I just, um, in some other work that I was doing, I came across this um, article in the British Medical Journal by um, Gibbons and Bryant on followership. And it's a really nice short um, article. And I think, you know, to your point, I, I use this as sort of a a framing um, around our professional work um, as we sort of engage between, you know, our professional development and thinking about leadership and thinking about our contributions, you know, to our, our um to our institutions. And I just love this idea because I think it works both ways. Like I think you can understand how to be a really good follower and in being a really um, good follower and the, the language they use in the article is an exemplary follower um, is one who is engaged constructively and brings critical thinking um, to um, any setting and particularly, um, you know, sort of can um, in some ways um, bring that thinking um, and, you know, challenge even a leader um, to see a different perspective, to understand things differently, while at the same time really being um, supportive. So you're bringing your critical thinking um, to advance um, um, some project or some initiative or some mission. 
And in that way, you know, a follower can really kind of influence and really mold a leader's views. I think we'll talk in a moment about sponsorship, but it's also a great way to demonstrate like your individual kind of talent and be recognized for that. You may be as a follower, sometimes asked to stand in or represent the leader, for example. Um, And I think another really important piece of this is that it encourages um, team members, faculty to be really engaged in, you know, whatever the process might be. And it kind of helps you avoid group think, right? Because sometimes if you have very passive followers, they're just going along, they're not going to challenge anything, they're just doing what they're doing. Um, you know, you really can go down the road of group think, right? And, and that can get us in trouble sometimes. So a really kind of um, exemplary um, uh, followers, one again, who's just really um, engaged and brings their critical thinking to bring different perspectives to, to different um, situations. And, you know, again, I think that the takeaway here for a junior faculty person, for example, is that how they can really um, actually influence, right, um, and persuade a leader through this kind of followership role. So that's one aspect. I also love that all of those followers who are interested in leadership will one day be leaders. And they're going to really, I hope, want to know how to um, uh, cultivate exemplary followers in all of their settings, too. So how, how will they do that? Yeah, I you're making me think of all here. I live in a row home and we have an HOA homeowner <laughs> and I'm on the board. And we have one member of the board who's always the naysayer. Mm. And it's not um, because we talk about, you know, in meetings and different ways to run, run a good meeting is a good leader. Sometimes will say, hey, Rachel, at this meeting, would you be the, the scribe? Will you take the notes? Hey, hey, Kim, will you be the one who listens for what's not being said? Hey, you know, Jose, will you be the one who um, makes sure everybody has time to talk? Will you be the timekeeper, et cetera, et cetera? Well, this guy has not been appointed to be the naysayer, but it's clear like part of his personality, he's a numbers guy. He's our um, yeah. he's, a, he's a finance guy. So he's all about detail. And at first, because I'm such a always hard driving, let's get her done. The meeting's supposed to start, it's supposed to end. Here's the agenda. Let's plow through these things. And so recognizing that my blind spot, because I'm such a high J, get her done, get to goal, is I recognize that one of one of my challenges is that I can skip over details because I so am so ambitious to get things done. And so I recognized after three or four meetings of like, Kim, stop being so harumphy. Um, Cause he'd raise his hand and I'd be like, ah, here he goes. But then it kind of, I, I relate that to work and in academic medicine in our daily lives where that's where like the emotional intelligence, again, what you talk about, everything is nuanced. You don't want to be that faculty member who's like, whenever you raise your hand, colleagues and leaders go, oh, here we go. The Eeyore in the group who's going to poke holes in everything we're doing. Tell us how dumb we are. Tell us a hundred ways why this is not going to work. It can be important, as I recognize with my guy in the HOA, that I'm like, oh, this guy's, man, smart, good idea. He missed that. Oh, yeah, that charter does say this. Or the budget did say that. And the contractor did say he did that. Oh, my gosh. But there's a way of smoothing that and growing into, as you're saying, leadership where you become good at 
following saying, hey, we're all in the boat. We're all rowing together. I agree, ideally, that this is our goal. We all want this to happen. And, you know, you are always good about the, when we do the improv, learning improv, yes, and, and versus a but, but you're all a bunch of idiots. You don't want to say that. You just want to say, yes, and I've noticed that, or what if, or I'm, it occurred to me that we really haven't considered an unanticipated outcome of or what if the patient experience might be such that, oh, that we're trying to improve things uh, data-wise or systems-wise, but we're making it really complicated for now for our patients. So that kind of avoiding the group thing, I think, is so important. But again, it's nuanced that we, you know, you don't want to be the the hammer just banging people over the head because that can be exhausting. So you want to yeah. find that nice, comfy place of adding value but not being um, the downer where people then you're, you're difficult to work with. Right. You don't hear my, my kind of. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in this article, what they would describe that is that is the alienated follower, right? So who, who is critical does bring critical ideas, but it's not really engaged. Right. So just kind of throwing out these roadblocks and is often sort of viewed as, you know, cynical and disengaged and skeptical. And, you know, the, it's important to have a little bit of skepticism, right? Because you got to recognize those unintended consequences, et cetera, but you have to remain engaged, right? To help move things forward, um, not just putting up roadblocks. And again, this is what they would call the exemplary follower. So you can use those same you know, critical thinking skills and, you know, raising some challenges, but remaining engaged and and working, you know, to move things forward, as opposed to just, as you say, like always the one that throws up a problem without any solution ever. Um, and I think that's another really important lesson, you know, as faculty, if you're going to bring a problem to a leader, you better come with a solution too, right? right. Um, because that may be a problem they didn't recognize before. And they may not want to know about that problem. So if you have a problem and you really want it to be solved, you should come with some um, ways to address that. And that can be a real opportunity. Right, right. And that's what I love about the idea of followership, that recognizing that you don't necessarily have to lead to yes. transform, to be mm-hmm. a change agent, to use that yeah. kind of terminology. You don't have to be at the front you know, good leaders are oftentimes in the back and they're cheering everybody on. And so yeah. learning how to follow deftly and doing that well um, is an art. And, it's, and we're not taught it in medical school in our doctoral yeah. training. So that that sensibility comes with observing and listening and being curious and taking your time when you get into a new position or a new institution or a new whatever to kind of feel feel the place out and learn and um, think about things. Yeah, I think that's so important. And it can be a fluid, you know, a fluid sort of concept too, right? And some aspects you're, you might decide you want to be, you know, a more passive follower or conformist follower, but there, you know, you really want to recognize when you can be an exemplary follower and that can really help you kind of shine and move things forward, right? That's how you can move forward. Um, your, again, your projects, your, um, your goals, um, you know, that do align with your ultimately with your kind of your big why, why you're there. So I think that's really important. To and Rachel, you, you said another important word, fluid. And fluidity mm-hmm. is important. Also, I want to emphasize and amplify what you said, because we know that you think, oh, gosh, I finally figured 
it out and now it's changed because there's a new leader. Oh my gosh, there's a global pandemic or, oh, the financial, the reimbursement system has changed or whatever, whatever. So yes, this life is fluid. So there's never, you're never done. Just like we say in academic medicine, your career, it's not a race. You're not going to like finish it. I win. I read the whole Google. I'm done. Um, it's it's a marathon without an end. So mm-hmm. that ability to be nimble and to recalibrate and to always be curious and always learning is is something that's going to be part of our job. But once you get comfortable with that discomfort, at some level, like in, in coaching, we're taught to be, especially yeah. me, a yacker and I talk and talk and talk, is to be comfortable in the silence, be comfortable in a little bit of discomfort then you'll become more confident. Like, oh, I got this. I've seen this before. I've seen a pandemic before. We're going to be okay. Exactly. I mean, that helps us grow in our in our careers and in our leadership journeys. Well said, Kim. Well said. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk about sponsorship. So another really important professional relationship that, you know, I really feel like, um, And I did grand rounds yesterday for neurology and I asked folks to kind of put in the chat um, what their understanding of sponsorship was, what some sponsorship activities were, and they were kind of nailing it. So I feel like this is this has really come into its own over the last um, several years. You know, we first started hearing about sponsorship maybe 10 years ago or so, and this was really borrowed from the business world and adopted by Um, folks in academic medicine who were particularly interested in how it was used in the business world, which was really about diversifying leadership. So business, business world recognized they had a problem, they knew the value and benefits of diverse leadership, and they wanted to be able to increase the number of women and minorities in leadership roles. And, you know, um, uh, those in academic medicine who were similarly, um, you know, thinking about these disparities in leadership in academic medicine thought, well, maybe this is something that we could use in academic medicine and what would it look like and how could this help us move forward um, with um, addressing, you know, gender equity and um, advancing um uh, faculty who are underrepresented in medicine into leadership roles. And so um, I think it's really important to understand what sponsorship is and how it works. And I think when we talk about this, your listeners will understand why we emphasize this idea of like recognizing where power and influence sits in the institution. So sponsorship, and this comes again from the um, business literature, is the active public support by someone appropriately placed in the organization who has significant power and influence on decision-making processes or structures and who is advocating for the career advancement of an individual. And I'll just like summarize this as concisely as I can. The key points are that sponsorship is focused on career advancement and it rests on power and influence. Because what it does for a junior faculty person or any faculty person is it provides critical visibility in an institution or an organization. It provides credibility through access to professional networks and career advancing opportunities. 
And so I think it's important to kind of think about how this is similar or different to mentorship. And one really important thing I would say, and I really want people to take this away, is that a mentor can be a sponsor, but only if they're in a position of power and influence, specifically related to what that protege, that's what we sort of call the sponsoree, a protege, um, is interested in in terms of advancement. So what does what does sponsorship look like? Right yeah. Now? Great question. So think about it. Like if you, I want, you know, you got to sort of put together a couple kind of concepts here. So it's about career advancement. And so think about what are important milestones for career advancement in academic medicine. What are the things that um, get you promoted to the next rank, right? And so those are things like um, national recognition, national leadership, international recognition, international leadership. Um, And so uh, those career advancing um, opportunities could be things like um, being um, nominated or put up for an important leadership role at the local institutional level or at a national level, being nominated for an important award, right? Those are things that demonstrate national recognition, right? Those are things our promotions committees are interested in. Being um, recommended or um, nominated for key committee roles, again, locally, nationally, Um you know, maybe maybe as a sponsor, you're invited to give a talk at a national or an international meeting, and you're a full professor. That's not, you know, critically important to your advancement. And you think about who is that junior person that could do a great job, you know, speaking at this meeting, at you know, whatever at this institution that I could recommend that person for that opportunity. Maybe um, nominating someone to sit on a journal editorial board, that's really seen as national leadership. Anything, you know, again, that gives that visibility is really, really important. These can also be like what we call stretch opportunities or career advancing opportunities. So as a sponsor, I might have something that needs to get done, right? I want to advance some kind of agenda in the organization. And I might recognize there's a junior faculty that, you know, is really talented. I've seen them, you know, at meetings, um, you know, share their ideas or talk about things that they have done that align with this mission. And I might say, oh, I would like this person to be involved in this process. I want this person on the committee. I want this person to chair the committee um, because I recognize that they have the skills to do it. And so that's really what sponsorship activities um, look like. They give an opportunity for that individual, that protege to really shine, to demonstrate what they can do, what they've done, um, what their strengths and talents are. What What I want to also point out is that wherever we are, anybody listening to this podcast in your career, we are both things. So we are mentors and we are mentees. We are sponsors. We are protégés. We are coaches. We are coachees. So even if you're an early career junior new faculty member, you're thinking again, like you said earlier, Rachel, I'm not a leader. Who am I? I'm just a, I'm just a fill in the blank. Don't minimize your importance. You do have power because you have trainees. You have learners you work with. You have uh, medical students, you have residents and fellows and patients and colleagues who are a, a minute behind you or half a rung below you. You have um, folks in the lab, in the clinic space. So we can be doing these activities, even if you're a junior, new person, 
with your trainees. So we're all kind of in in the pool together. So I like to always think of, okay, I need to learn this part of it, but I can I can also activate it with the people who I'm bringing up as well. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's so important. And, you know, it was, it was, it was really a mindset um, and kind of like an aha moment for me as I was sort of really thinking about this. And then, you know, I, I sort of made a decision that, oh, I want, I want to do everything I can to, to sponsor women, because that was something that was really important to me. And, you know, I just sort of think about every opportunity. I look for talented individuals. I try to sort of recognize that. Um, I try to expand my network so that I can make those connections, right? And and it really highlights how, how powerful those social or, you know, professional slash social networks can be. And so think about, you know, if you're a sponsor, think about like, what is your network in, in your local institution, right? Where do you have influence? And also think about at the national level, the same. How can you connect, you know, really talented junior faculty with um, others beyond their network that could really lead to some great opportunities or recognition, um, or even, you know, at the at the you know, maybe maybe an invitation to come and talk, or maybe even just someone who who becomes aware of the work that they're doing, and you know, who knows, in five years could serve as a referee for that person when they're going up for promotion. So it's it's so important um, to sort of recognize this. I I have a um, colleague in the Department of Medicine who you know is just an incredible person, Dr. Deidre Cruz, who I'm in you know sort of awe of, and she is so strategic about this. She would keep an Excel sheet when she would go to meetings of all the people that she like connected with, talked to, and would keep information about you know just an email and maybe what their interests are, so she could connect back later on. And I think it really has been um, helpful for her, and I know she she really serves as a connector and a sponsor for others. So I just sort of love that idea. And, um, you know, I know that can be hard for some individuals to feel like, oh, I'm not really good at that. Um, So find that person, that sponsor who can be your connector and help you, you know, make those relationships and introductions and things like that. And this is where as a protege, again, you got to understand how things work and you have to sort of know like, okay, well, if if this national role is something that I I'd really like to be able to do at some point, you know, how, what is the step between like who at my local institution is really actively engaged in that national organization? Can I meet with them? Can I talk to them? Can I let them know what my interests are, what I'm doing, how it aligns with that? Um, And again, that's, that just kind of demonstrates the importance of sort of understanding, um, organizations, connections, networks, all of these things and how they work. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yes, you're right. And the answer to all those questions, those hypothetical questions is yes, you can. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just send an email. um, There's 99 out of 100 people will say, yeah, sure. I'd love to send you this or talk with that or chat with you for five minutes. So put yourself out there and do it. Yeah, it's. it's, I think that is true. A lot easier than than we we think, and some of us are like, well, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not hooked up in any professional national, you know, arena. How can I do that? I'm so junior, I'm new. Well, you came from somewhere. You did your training somewhere. You did your training at a usually a different or an institution or near. You can that's your connection. You can yeah. refer people or students or trainees back there, and 
and build, build some help, build someone else up, which will give you again, give you confidence and grow you in your reputation and people looking at you and seeing that capacity in you. So Dr. Rachel Levine, always, always uh, learn a lot from you. I love working with you Um, folks. Now you understand why Uh, just great, great place. Hopkins, Rachel Levine, our associate dean for faculty educational development professor at Hopkins. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. You know, I love talking about this stuff. So that was super fun. And I hope it was helpful for, for your listeners. I'm sure it was. If you have someone that you'd like to nominate or sponsor to be on the podcast, come on, just shoot an email to facultyfactory.org or go to facultyfactory.org or find Rachel Levine, rlevine3 at jimmy.edu, J-H-M-I. Get in touch with us and sponsor someone to be on the podcast or you can be on the podcast as well. Let's just keep growing this community. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.